Welcome to Buy, Grow, Sell, a podcast for entrepreneurs looking to acquire, grow, or exit a business, hosted by Simon Bedard. Hey there, it's Simon Bedard here. If you're brand new to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast, then welcome. It's great to have you on this journey. Since its launch, I've interviewed many entrepreneurs that have bought, grown, or sold a business. And in some cases, they've completed all three steps and started all over again. Our goal is to share the stories of business owners that have traveled at least part of this cycle so that we can learn from their experience. Whether it's the dizzying heights of success or the hard lessons learned through adversity, we get to the heart of what drives success and how to apply these lessons on your journey. So join us for the best insights, interviews, and inside information on how to buy, grow, and sell a business straight from the entrepreneurs who've lived and breathed it. Welcome back to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast. I really think you're going to enjoy this next episode as my guest Ryan Tansom takes us through his journey as not only a young lad coming up into the family business, but also as an executive and a senior leader in that company, taking it right through to an eventual sale as a form of exit. Of course, Ryan's gone on and built some pretty successful businesses since then, which he'll, he'll talk a little bit about. But what I really love about this episode is that Ryan's example is so common out there when we're looking at mid-market family-run businesses. You know, he talks about some of the challenges between the needs of, say, his father versus himself. You know, people at very different stages of life, what they're looking for, what they want as the humans behind the business, as opposed to the perhaps the CFO or the CEO who's just trying to reach uh, corporate and business objectives. You know, and there can be a lot of tension in there as people build businesses and try to actually get what they want out of this experience. You know, and, and he sort of touches on the, that there's a language that we all need to learn as business owners to be able to have the type of conversations we need to have. Otherwise, frankly, many of these situations end in disaster as business partners both just tear each other and tear the business apart. So Ryan has been really generous in talking about his family experiences and some of those challenges. Um, I really love the fact that he he also goes into their experience of selling and you know how to identify value with buyers. Um, you know we talked about strategic buyers and and his number one rule in terms of thinking about how to engage those buyers, identify value, and then ultimately negotiate the best deal you can. Um, look, it's been a really really insightful podcast and episode. I'm really excited to bring him to you. This is Ryan Tansom. Ryan, welcome to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast. I'm super pumped to be here, man. I love it. Uh, thank you for making the time. I've, uh, I've been looking forward to interviewing you. Um, little, little disclaimer here for those listening. Um, it's the first time I've actually met Ryan, but I've, I've kind of seen Ryan around in the world. And I think, you know, we, we talk about similar stuff. We do similar things. Ryan's doing some very cool work. And I think you can't help but bump into um, good people doing good things. So thanks for making the time, Ryan. I'm, I think this will be a great episode. Simon, that means, that means a lot, man. Because like, I, even to your point, like, I think that if a bunch of people, like millions of people went out and like, were helping the business owners understand the stuff that we're talking about. Like, ev There's room for everybody. And it's like the, the, everybody is helping the cause in different ways. And the more we can start beating the same beat and the same drum, man, I just, I love it. I love what you're doing. Yeah, I look, totally agree. Totally agree. It's a, it's, a, it's a large abundant world, right? And I think the mission here is to help business owners on this journey. You know, life and business can be hard enough. And uh, I, I just, 
I just keep thinking there's not there's so many business owners out there who they work really hard, they take a lot of risks, they invest money, they hire people, they they're contributing to the community, the economy, all these sort of good things. And then, you know, at the end of their marathon, they kind of trip over hundred meters from the finish line and break a leg and they don't get to finish properly. And it's <laughs> it's terrible. I just think there's a kind of an injustice about it. And anyway, you know, like like yourself, I think we're all on a mission to try to change that. So hundred percent. And and it, it, before that scenario, you're laying on the pillow at night, you're going, is this all worth it? And sometimes you just <laughs> want to know that you're on track to like make it all worth it at some point. <laughs> yeah, totally. It's it's something, you know, it's it's funny. I um talking to all my clients, I, I think if you haven't had a couple of sleepless nights wondering whether you're actually gonna make it, you probably haven't been in business. Yeah, or you're so so darn lucky that you have no like it, that's where the sex, success breeds failure because you're just like oh it's easy it's like yeah, no, yeah, yeah. wrong yeah yeah that, that slim few people who fall and ass backwards into a pile of money and go geez yeah. I'm smart and then they're like well what's this all about how do I get happiness I'm like I will I, I will gladly figure out that problem <laughs> <laughs> totally totally um, Ryan just to kick off mate like maybe could, could you give us a little bit of background I I know that. Um, you know, we're going to talk a bit about your family business, Imaging Path, and how they sold to Loeffler and all that sort of stuff. But maybe start at the beginning of your career. Tell us, you know, what have you done and how did you sort of end up in the family business, et cetera? It's going to be hard, Simon, because I don't know if I can start off my career without the family business. Because like, just like most, you know, family businesses, I actually have had people and my dad or other people saying, my dad said, all your all your uh, toilet paper was bought with copiers and toner runs in your blood. <laughs> So like <laughs> and then that's so if you want I I'll, I'll just maybe could just do a quick cliff note so we I my dad started our family business in the early 90s grew it I started full time in 09 we turned it around sold it in 2014 I consulted for a bunch of years and now we've got a business where we do fractional CFO services and training but I think the real kind of uh, the the focal point is going to be talking about the the family business which I'm happy to start at ground zero, man. Like, I don't know exactly how you want to guide me into this, but it's a, we could sit here for three days, man. I know it's in the yeah, morning. Yeah, I yeah. could be having multiple <laughs> beers, but like, so. Uh, so, so t- what, are, what did the business do? So you mentioned copiers. Talk to us about what the business did and, and, and how old were you when you started? So my dad started it. Um, he would, so barely graduated high school, didn't go to college. He was a hustler and it was like calling cards and then it was credit card machines. He's like, ah, oh, this copier thing has 200% margins. I'll sell this. That's pretty much <laughs> <laughs> entrepreneur. And then there was an opportunity and he hustled. And so Simon, what happened was uh, he mortgaged our house, bought a quarter million dollars for the old used Panasonic copiers. And this is back in the early nineties. And he, he said to our family, like, we'll have a pool. He never really told us whether it was gonna be at the apartment complex or our house. <laughs> So the what he ended up doing is uh, so he was scaling that business while I was in I think I in mid I don't know how old I was and I was in middle school or something like that and as we grew um, I, I I I was doing meter reads so it was the business what it was used to do was sell copiers and then we do the service behind them and then you know you you charge the client based on the clicks cost per copy so when I say meter reads one of my first jobs was picking up the phone and calling our clients and hey what's the new meter read because we have to like look at the delta between the month and then Billy before the internet was really connecting all these. So I was working in the business, cleaning things, moving copiers, moving the buildings, uh, helping to move over the years. Swore my grave I'd never go work for him, Simon. Like every, <laughs> I swear most family businesses do. I mean, I, like I remember my first internship. I got home from college, I had long hair, and he's like, "You're getting a suit on, man. Cut that damn hair." 
I'm like, come on. And I'm like, nope. So I'm like 19 drowning in this shitty suit. And I go to the biggest building in Minneapolis. And I'm like, well, that looks like it has a lot of companies in it. And just knocking on doors and got kicked out by security. But just selling copiers and then servicing them is how the business started. Yeah. And but I think that's cool. Like I, you know, it's the proverbial starting sweeping the floor, right? Like it's, you know, everybody's got to start somewhere. But I, but I do think, you know, I was chatting to one of my colleagues about this just the other day saying the ability to just go out there and bang on some doors and try to generate business. I mean, it's almost a lost art these days. 100%, man. Oh, you could, you could get me on for multiple episodes about this because I grew up selling and my dad, like in, I, I I truly am so so blessed and grateful for like the one word of advice because he didn't go to college. He was like, "Here's the deal: if you can sell some shit, you're gonna do great." And I'm like, "Really? Okay." So it and he's like, you know, he goes, "I was never good at school, but as long as you understand value and you can show up, work hard, be nice to people, actively listen, essentially sales." And Simon, like, how many of people you've been on your show or my show and lawn care, you know, selling lollipops, whatever they got started with, and. I like the first job was 400 selling copies, 400 phone calls, 15 appointments, seven net news, you know, eight, uh, eight recorded reviews. And then there's five proposals, three closes, 40 grand in revenue every single month over and over. And it was like a clock. It was a machine, man. 20 people. We had 22 people, I think, in sales at the top. And we could take a third of our pipeline and know that that was going to be what we close every single month. And so, like, it's so interesting. It is a lost art because you know what? You get rejected a lot. Yeah. And people don't like to be rejected. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's funny. It, um, it, it goes right through to, I mean, you know, now with our firm exit advisory, I mean, we're selling businesses every day and we're constantly even coaching our clients to say, like, man, you've got to understand this is, I don't want to call this a game because that that kind of sounds disrespectful to how important this is to you. But negotiation is a game. It's a it's something that you know people are going to play with, and you gotta you gotta have a bit of a thick skin when people call. Oh, they say that your child is ugly, or they're dancing around you, frustrating you, and doing things that you you know you think they should just give you money. So it's um yeah, I think I think it's building that thick skin. And, yeah, totally right. Like that ability to accept no and 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 not take it personally and keep rolling with it and keep persisting because actually no just might mean no, not right now, but yes tomorrow. <laughs> and get to the no as fast as possible so you can keep moving on. And you said something super interesting, Sammy, because kind of continuing the the storyline and we can go as deep into any of these things as you want because they normally have like a seven minute like kind of overview, but like you know, there's days where the stories, but you know, when I started, I, so in 09, when I started full-time, the the whole industry got flipped on its head because of the financial crisis. So again, did all my internships and I swore on my grave, I'd never go work for him. I'm like, you know what? In 09, decided to, his GM at the point, and at that moment, convinced me that, hey, you don't have to sell Kamat because I hated copiers. I'm like, dude, they're just like, my dad was like, technology, you can duplicate. I'm like, dude, this thing's called an iPhone. And like, so like, <laughs> I wasn't technology, this is a commodity. And they sucked me in for managed print services, which is a solution and document management anyways. So got kind of hook, line and sinker into the family business in 09. I had a blissful like six or seven months, I mean, where I was uh, selling and just kind of doing the grind. And as an owner's son, you have two choices, show up and work twice as hard as everybody, or two, be the entitled jerk everybody thinks you're gonna be. And it's, I took the first route, doubled it down, worked twice as hard just to get you know a little bit of credit. But what happened was I get pulled into the bank in the CPA meetings right off the bat. 
and we lost almost a million bucks that year in 09 because the margins of the equipment just dropped out. Like in like, you know, the in, the, the internet's becoming more of a, a more of a, a tool where the buyers were like pricing out. They got more sophisticated on leasing and understanding where the margins were. So pretty much I had like this blissful, like, hey, this is great, let's just sell. And then all of a sudden I'm like, this whole thing is at at risk all the time. So I started pulling my dad back in and it was pretty much for like the next five and a half, six years, a complete turnaround. And so there's a lot underneath of what we did over those next six years. But um, go, the reason I brought this part of the story up is you said, you know, calling your baby ugly, super fascinating is multi-generational. Not only when you're selling a company, that that conversation comes up a lot because there's so much identity and pride into what people built, rightfully so, by the way. But the when I was doing it with my dad, I'd be like, we got to fix this because this is wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong. And it like, and after a while, like it was just like running and we, we were constantly butting heads and I have to say, okay, you did a really good job. And like, and not, not being patronizing, like this is all awesome, but we have to be better if we want to keep going. So like, there's this recognition, like you've built, you're in the 3% of people that have built a $20 million business. So like, can we just admit that? But now we want to get better. And it's a, it's a psychological game man, trying to, you know, evolve to that next stage. Yeah you're right we could talk for days and days on this um, <laughs> um you know interesting business right and, and 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 you started in the 90s you know we had a recession in the early 90s right so so the fact that your father started a business around that time like my hat's off to him already um building through this period into the early 2000s late you know noughties um Internet is coming to a thing, you know, I'm old enough to remember the internet coming in. Jeez, that sounds really old. <laughs> um, oh, he had he had he had logos on his cars that said www.imagingpat.com. Like someone's gonna be flying down the highway on their Nokia phone <laughs> and plugging in a web address. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally right. I know it's funny. So, so you've got this business and it's gone. It's going through transformational change, right? Like, I mean, the internet has upset a lot of industries. Has changed a lot of stuff. And I'm just, you know, I'm fascinated that. You've kind of got to this point where things aren't perhaps working as well as you wanted them to, or you felt they should, and and I just I just see this all the time with clients because that's a real that's a crossroad, right? Like it's do, do we just pull up stumps and say I'm done, or do we double down, invest more, and that's a scary thing for people who are at perhaps a later stage of their business journey, you know that. I always think it's time, money, effort. Like, do, do you have the energy to keep fighting? And so talk, talk me through that a little bit. There must have been some pretty heavy conversations around the dinner table. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. And and I think you, you nailed it where, like, first of all, it people know that that's the question of, like, double down or fold or fold up and be done. We all know that realistically the folding up, I mean, it happens. It happens every day but people burn the entire thing straight into the ground to try it through all. Because if you think about it with the identity infusion that we have, it's like, I'm a failure. It didn't work. What's everybody going to say? So there's the mental psychological garbage on this, but then there's also like, what the hell am I going to do? I have no cash. I, how do I get a job? And so like, you kind of just trap yourself into this. Actually, I heard uh, one person about a year, decade ago and I've stolen it and I don't know where it came from. I'm professionally unemployable. Because <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. like I'm an entrepreneur, so I'm I'm really good at a lot of things, but like I'm not a good employee. And so the double down is what we did. And the 
there's really interesting over the last eight years, nine years since I've been uh, doing what I would do now is what, why did we actually have those conflicts and why do other people do? And, and it's this, when you feel trapped, it's like, okay, like I'm going to articulate it like I do now, but I don't, I wouldn't have been able to do this a decade ago is, so as we're turning it around, so all this stuff is very mechanical. So we, well, I had like replaced about 60% of the employees by the time I was like 25. So I was helping like turn around everybody and get new people in, different staff. We uh, built out a new ERP system. So a couple hundred grand into like rolling that out, sold a couple branches for cash. I, I helped build out the managed IT services and the software automation. So we were like, and rebranded. So we're going head to head with other providers that are providing everything. Cause if the margins drop out of the equipment, then you're trying to get essentially higher profitability price per customer and you're bundling a bunch of stuff in. So there's a lot of operational discussions we can have about turning around how to create an actual sustainable business. But outside of that, Simon, it's the discussions with my dad and I. And it starts where you separate ownership from management roles, which people do not do like ever. They conflate the two. It's like, hey, you have equity in this asset. That's estate planning and you have an investor hat on of creating a valuable asset. And then you have a job that you get a W-2 income from and that's it. And you have to separate those two, which we did not. So there's a lot of conflation of like, hey, you get this because you're, you know, that. And like, it just, it confuses everything. So if you split ownership versus management roles, which we didn't, the other conflict comes from what do the owners want? And how that translates into the conflict and the tension in the, in the company, Simon, is I was doubling down. I'm like, I want to grow, 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 grow. I'm in my mid twenties. And he's like, distributions, 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 boats, cars, cabins. And like, I don't like this. I don't want to talk about copiers. So how does that translate in the conflict? We have one stream of cash flow. What are we going to do with it? Well, we got to pay our taxes. So then what are we going to do with that cash flow? Are we going to reinvest to hit our goals and build, you know, fund our strategies? Or are we going to take it out and have a lifestyle? And people don't clarify those things. So what happens is you you end up in your weekly L10 meetings. And if you're running US or executive meetings, you're going, we're going to do these things. And you're like, wait a second, is that going to come out of my pocket? Or is that not going to come out of my pocket? So we had this complete misalignment on the future vision of the company, how we're going to fund that growth, how that impacts distributions and taxes and the income from both of us and the future value of that company. We didn't know any of these things. So what did it just results in is complaining and fighting because you don't have even the words to describe why you're frustrated. Like, I want to build out managed IT service. Well, it costs a couple million dollars prior to selling. And it, like that couple million dollars is not available for us on the other side if we're going to reinvest. So it's like, it's not even having the tools to discuss that, that becomes the, probably the hardest part. Yeah. And I, 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 I mean, it makes complete sense to me because I think I'm around it so often, but it's, you're, you're right. I mean, I think so many business owners, certainly the many hundreds that I've spoken to, find themselves in this kind of quandary in this problem and not able to articulate why they are where they are or how to even change things you know it's the old issue of i pulled this lever to solve that this problem but then when i pulled it to solve that problem but two other problems popped up and they're kind of doing this musical thing of pulling levers trying to solve problems and it just in the end it becomes just too hard yeah, and it's like the second and th third order effect of your decision. I mean, a business is not linear. It's a complex machine. So if you dive into complexity theory, I mean, you, you your body, if you do something to it, it's going to affect the whole thing, right? You put sawdust into your car, into the gas tank, it's going to mess the whole thing up. You're not, you can't just change one part of it and be like, oh, that's fine. Like, 
and a business is that. So what happens is people don't know that they go and they fix that whole thing and then it ripples out into all these different situations. And Simon, you know, the, the analogy I love to give when I, I give my keynotes is that entrepreneurs, when they're running their business, they're building a puzzle without the picture with the puzzle pieces upside down. Are you going to get there? Maybe. Is it going to be very frustrating, very time intensive? You're going to be like, of course, but if you get the box and you go, hey, is this a church or an elephant? Okay, it's an <laughs> elephant. Got it. We're going to flip all the pictures over. We're going to put the corners in. We're going to put the puzzle pieces or the framework. And then you get a you get the puzzle piece. And you go, oh, it's great. It's we're going to. So now you start to have a framework for decision making, not realize like, it, I don't know. I just watched that bring down anxiety and bring down the the stress of running a company. Yeah. And, and I also think too, for, for people who are in the thick of that, they start to realize that there's no silver bullet here. Stop looking for the simple answer to the complex problem. Um, in fact, it's one of my favorite quotes of all time is George Bernard Shaw. You know, for, for every complex problem, there's a simple answer that's wrong. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and, and it's so true, right? Like I think in business, we're looking for that, oh, well, where's that one thing that I can hang my hat on and, and it's going to basically solve my problems. And it's, yeah, I, I think you're right. I use the jigsaw puzzle analogy quite a lot myself because it's, there's so many different variables here. And it's, um, yeah, it can, be, it can be very, very hard to navigate. And what we can do is if using my story as the vehicle to, to prove some of these points is like, what is, so let's, let's translate the puzzle picture to a business. The, what's the goal? Like the goal is not a go to 10 million to 20 million in revenue. That's, those are vanity metrics. And by the way, you can have, do 20 million in revenue and lose 300 million. Just look at the public markets in, the, in America. And so the goal, the picture is to say, okay, Simon, I want my company to do this and be this in five years. You know, like the strategies, the impact that you want to make. You say, okay, well, what's the revenue? And then what's the, what's the cash flow, the EBITDA need to be? And what's the value? What is the valuation? Just like private equity does. What's the valuation that we want? And like, let's say it's 2025, we want a $10 million equity valued company and we have a certain amount of normalized EBITDA we need to get there. Then we say, okay, how are we going to get there? Okay, people and machinery or technology or whatever it is, those cost things. How are we going to fund that? Okay, then we're going to say, well, can we fund that with cash flow from operations? Yes or no? Okay, how does that impact the, my desired distributions? And then how does that impact taxes? And then, you know, then it's just a timeline. It's like, okay, well, because I believe if you have the amount of capital, energy, and, uh, and time, I'm sorry, time, capital, and energy, like you can get it anything you want. It's when some of those things are unrealistic. So that's the picture, Simon. And like, I think that when we were talking about the decision-making, my dad and I didn't know the, the ripple effect of the trade or even what trade-offs we had. It was like, here's the decision. Well, if we make this decision, what happens? I don't know. I know it fixes this problem that's right in front of us, like you were saying. So that's what we were just constantly doing is fixing those problems. And then because we don't have that puzzle picture and we didn't, what you end up doing, you meaning I should say me, or like a lot of entrepreneurs that I see, you solve for annual income because you don't know how valuations work and value creation works. So what you do is you say, all right, we're going to solve how, how much cash can we take out of this company through salary, perks, and distributions each year. And then you just start over every single year not really understanding how to grow the value of that asset because you don't have that picture that's clean and clear in sight. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. You're spot on. 
absolutely spot on. And and th- throw in there a couple of additional complications around, you know, you talked about your dad and yourself and different needs and people in different business owners or partners at different stages of life. Man, you know, like the desire to build businesses versus the tension or pull of wanting to do things in your personal life and all that sort of stuff muddies that water very, very well. In fact, I've, in fact, I've had I've had guests on the show that that literally their business has torn itself apart because two business partners, one's quite senior, you know, in age and and wants to move on, and the other one's young and hungry and wants to grow, and and it's literally just destroyed businesses because they couldn't resolve that tension. Because they didn't understand the picture and then the framework. And the framework becomes like, okay, like, so like, Simon, let's say you and I owned a business together. Let's say you were twice my age. I'm just making this up. But like, okay, well, we share an asset. Okay. There's an asset that has equity in it and that we have ownership in. That does not mean that you're guaranteed a job, by the way. Like I have Apple stock. I don't work at the Genius Bar, just FYI. So like private equity, the entire industry is based on the fact that we're going to buy these things and other people are going to run them and grow that value for us. So like ownership, like in management roles, the moment you split those two things off, now you can have a discussion around what do you, Simon, what do you want for your job? Oh, by the way, you don't, you're, you're burnt out. Oh, you don't want to have a job. Do you like the asset? So now we have a, so like Simon, you probably have this people call me and like, I want out. I'm like, out of what? Your job or your asset? I don't have anybody call me and be like, I really want out of the million dollar mailbox money that I have every year. No, they're usually referring to the job, but like, so this is where my dad and I didn't know these things and we're having these conversations. He didn't need a pile of money. What he wanted was income without having to talk about copiers. But no, there was no way to discuss that. So you talk about the, the frustration. So you're turning, we were turning a business around which requires a lot of reinvestment. We had a we had a horrible financial situation, not not from losing the money because we had a really good business. I mean, it would have taken us honestly twelve months to get out of that thing just because of the whole financial crisis. But our bank was under an FDIC covenant because they were had a bunch of crap loans from the real estate. So then the whole market was a mess, and we got the kind of the bad end of the stick like a lot of everybody else did. So we're reinvesting, and he wants money. He doesn't want to, so that he has to have a job in order to collect a paycheck. And so like there wasn't enough cash flow to like the only way to grow if you grow the value of that asset and the cash flow, then there's a lot of more choices. And so like it, it we were doing all these things just out of pure necessity, but not knowing why are we doing this and what do we what are our financial goals and what are our personal goals to align it. And that's where we'd sit down with bankers and CPAs and attorneys and investment bankers, which I didn't really understand what they were at the point. And everybody is very myopic and saying like, this is what we're doing. And the industry that you're in right now wasn't even around 10 years ago. So like we didn't have anybody that could look up and kind of look at the whole picture. But it just is so fascinating to me that the complications that we had were a lack of education and a lack of cohesive strategy towards a long-term goal where there was clear trade-offs. You can't have it all. But like if Corey wants this and Ryan wants this, what are the financial implications of that? And what are the personal implications of that? It's not that complicated if you can see the picture. Yeah, and and uh, and I'll add, you, you're willing to keep an open mind and accept that your business partners, the people, the other stakeholders may have a very different opinion to you, <laughs> and you and you're trying to find that middle common ground, right? Um, you know, it's it's uh, if I could summarize a little bit, I think, or, or, or sort of try to articulate what I'm feeling from you, Ryan, is that. So I guess a common theme that I'm I'm talking to business owners about too is that fundamentally, like your business is not you for starters. Your business is an asset. 
you know, and and ultimately, I don't think any of us are actually like born to do business. You know, you're born to live your life. So that actually, the most pivotal question you should be asking yourself as a business owner, as a human, is what kind of life do I want? And then you can start to shape this asset we call a business to deliver yep. you that life. Yeah, hundred percent. And and I just think that where you've got these other business partners, recognise that they're jigsaw puzzle may have a very different picture to you. <laughs> so how do we either help everybody get what they need or most of it, because we all need to you know, make compromises along the way, but how do we either help people get what they need or does it make sense for us to actually shake hands part ways, let's help people go and be successful in their own right because while, we still, while this asset still has good value and is potentially quite saleable. Yeah, versus blowing it all up. And, and, and yeah. I think w- the crucial part of this, Simon, is that there's such a lack of education in this space. So like, how can we even, like my dad and I couldn't, how can you even sit down and have a conversation with someone if no one even agrees on how a company's valued? Like, and so what I love about what I do is like, it's like, I'm sorry, you can't argue with this. These are three financial statements. They all exist. The dry cleaners, whether you know it's Apple, whether you're in Australia or whether you're in the UK, it's double entry accounting, man. And there's a certain amount of value to this risk of this cash flow. And you can't just make that stuff up. So like the moment that you and I say, okay, we have an asset. Here's the rough intrinsic value of it. We both have jobs at this asset that work for this asset. Okay, what do you want? What's your timeline? When and how do you need it? How does it impact your lifestyle, cash flow versus your wealth? Like, there's no common ground to start the conversations at. So what I see people do is they get like the their frontal cortex shrinks up, the blood goes away, and then they go into defense mode, and then they just so it blows up because they don't even know what words to use to describe their feeling of being trapped. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yes, it's you're right. I'm it's I'm glad that you know the there's guys like you, Ryan, and certainly we're trying to do our bit as well. But it's you know we've got to change the conversation, and I think we're and, and you know you made a point earlier too about this whole um, you know deciding not to fold because you're all in how much of the stigma that goes around potentially being a failure and all this sort of stuff. Like I, I will say, one of the things I've noticed over the last few years too is that there are. People like us out here trying to change that conversation as well. <laughs> there shouldn't be a stigma about saying, actually, like this this particular asset's run its course, or you know, there's. I mean, every single asset, every single human, we all there's a timeline here, right? <laughs> At some point, then you know, everything comes to an end. So you know, actually trying to have some foresight and put aside your ego for a moment to make clearer decisions is going to be much more helpful for business owners and people just in general. <laughs> Well, and, and, and it also helps you get out of the day-to-day too. And like, and again, because I don't want, I know there's a lot to unpack with my story too, so we can keep doing that because all these examples we can pull out from my story. But like, my dad didn't know what to do outside of the business and I didn't know what to do. I didn't have like, and then like the moment, you, like so that there's so much garbage wrapped up into it. So then you feel stuck. And so as we're going through and we're thinking we should, we're, peer, we're envisaged the peer group and like should be growing. Honestly, like when I think about right now and some major lessons learned that in the transaction that we had, Simon. So what happens, we kept having these conversations, you know, the groundhog day, like my dad's like, I want to sell, I don't want to sell, I want to sell, I want to sell. I'm like, okay. So like, and again, because we didn't know all the stuff we just covered about ownership versus management roles and income and like the wealth and all this stuff. So it was just, 
stuck constant same conversation and he, we're just looking at each other and he, we're sitting at a bar he's like dude i'm out i want out. i don't want to talk about candy copies anymore i want my money i don't like this anymore i love you man you know, and we're like best friends and like we were in the trenches together and he's like you know you're so worth it in the marketplace you'll figure it out and so at that point in after all the exploration that we had done it's like fine and that by this time we're a healthy seven figure ebitda so like again it was not a burning down ship but the if the the challenge was is okay so i didn't know all of our exit options which is something that i know you talk about a lot too and our the, the industry in general does you can monetize your company and still be the leader like an esop so you can still run the company. So depending on what you want, if you love being the leader, you could do an ESOP, monetize your business, take some cash off out, and like maybe take a seller's note, sell the private equity, you know, a big chunk of it, you know, get some money, then you know, fuel it for growth, or you could do an internal transfer. There's so many ways to do this. Didn't know all that. So what we did is what I see most people do is we said, okay, well, Corey doesn't want to take a note from Ryan for 15 years while I'm by the way, it's copiers. I'm like, I'm not really willing to take a 15 year risk on buying a floppy disk business as they're going out of style. And it's a good industry and it's still thriving. It's just consolidating, but still I'm like, okay, well, I'm not too fond of that. And then, so we, what we did is we decided to take it to market, didn't hire someone like you, which we should have, because we didn't trust anybody of that we had been talking to, pinned up a few uh, local competitors. And what happened was, and I talk a lot about this on my podcast that there, there, we had two offers. One was almost double the value of the other one. One was based on the intrinsic cash flow value, the discounted cash flow, because they were going to keep everything the servers, the cars, the people, the 90 employees, the building, all that stuff. So the cash flow had to generate enough to satisfy the entire deal. The other one was like, gut the, gut the whole thing. And so it was essentially, we normalized the EBITDA with all the back office synergies. And it was like, they get, they need to keep 34 of our 90 employees. They don't need all the servers. They don't need, I mean, some of the cars. And so what happens is not knowing the psychology behind the stuff that you and I both know is a huge deal. Maximize purchase price was the only decision factor. Yeah. Sign the purchase agreement. I had to go back and my dad and I had to call in on, you know, 90 people, not a company meeting day. Everybody knows, like, so there's 20 technicians in the field, 18 salespeople, whatever we had at this time. Then I, I still get a stomachache, dude. Like, it just, and then we're like, hey, we sold to a local competitor down the road. Everybody knows, like, that's a bad deal. Then everybody has to interview their, interview for their jobs. And by the way, just to be say, this is not the buyer's fault. This is why they bought the company. And this is what they had all the right to do. I just didn't know there was other options. So, I, this at my, at my point, uh, at this point, it was my baby. I had built, I mean, I, we had built an insane team that was like the Zappos culture, which was so fun to work with. We were onto some revolutionary stuff with the managed IT services, Minnesota Wild, we were working with them, like just a ton of really cool stuff. And the nature of the deal was it was an asset sale. So it was like, give me your customers, your few thousand customers, give me the rockstar people, the skeleton crew, CSV file upload, and we're off to the races. We had to fire those people. It was the hardest day of my life, man. It was the hardest day. Ah, uh, look, you know, I think firing people at any point in time is horrible. But when you're going through so much emotionally and, and the people that you're letting go don't understand the decision. I mean, you can logically explain things to at them, all. but they don't, yeah, they don't get it. They don't understand what you've been through and the turmoil you've been through before you had to make those decisions. So, oh, and, and let, let, me, um, let me unpack that for a second. It is so we're doing 20 million in revenue. The employees think that Ryan and Corey walked away with 40 million 
And what we know both happened is it was not a $20 million enterprise value sale. There was a multiple based on EBITDA and then there was debt and taxes. <laughs> so yeah. it's called the waterfall. So like it was like a fraction of what everybody thought we made. And so then not only and like the whole deal structure was like thought up on the fly with advisors that weren't talking to each other. No one like you was leading the process. And so it's so messed up because everybody thinks you guys like people became like generationally wealthy while they got fired. And and then we're sitting there like it's just such a disconnect. It's insane. Yeah, yeah, and it, it, it is it is really challenging, isn't it? And it's one of the things you know. In fact, I was we were on a call last night discussing you know with the buyers and negotiating an agreement and talking about the communications plan and how do we actually start to address people once this goes through and you know having a plan for all those things is critical, right? Like it just ultimately there's a lot of people involved, there's a lot of livelihoods, a lot of families, a lot of a lot at stake, and you know it's um, yeah just just such a delicate balance. Um, in how how you manage that sort of stuff, um, Ryan. I want to ask. Um, so, t- talk to me a little bit more about. Um, you know, you, how did how did you talk me through how they came up with the number again? I just like you went over that fairly sort of quickly. You talked about multi- was it a multiple of EBITDA? Did you say, or was there like? Because I think I read somewhere that you guys, you know, as a part of um, you know IT services, you did have ongoing contracts and stuff like that. Like, how, how did they come at the number? So there's, um, I'll kind of start from like conceptually how valuations work, which you probably talk yeah. about a lot, but just to kind of set, set the table here is you got the, you can have a valuation of a company based on the risk of the cash where you have the normalized EBIT the times a multiple, right? Very standard for any professional investor, private equity firms, valuation providers and stuff like that. And then you have like a lot of industry rules of thumb. So I mean, you know, like all they're doing is just trying to get to what the hell is this thing worth? based on the discounted cash flow. So like, cause no entrepreneurs are not going around at the bar going, what's your DCF? You know, like, it's like, <laughs> no, they're going, they're going, my buddy said my company sold for 10 times revenue, man. And it's like, nope. And so all like, I say all that because like, you know, financial advisory firms will trade at, trade at two to three times revenue. That's just a rule of thumb to get to what the normalized cash flow is. Our business, on a, let's say it was just 20 million. I think we're a little bit less than that when we sold, but in revenue, it's usually two thirds uh, locked in bank finance annual contracts and then a third transaction. So prior, like this is, you know, shoot, not like almost nine years ago, it was like there were some rules of thumb of like a, a number times the revenue of the contracts. All they're doing is getting to like, because all they did was they said, give me your contracts. I'm going to plop it on my infrastructure. And I know exactly what the normalized EBITDA is going to be. So it what we ended up doing is sitting down. And I, and again, I really respect uh, Jim and Neil, the, the buyers. And we sat down and it was me and my team and uh, me and my dad and our CFO, Neil, the CFO of the buyer and Jim, like arguing over every single line item for ad backs. Oh, <laughs> so man. Like, Do you need this? Yeah. Do you need that? Do you need this? Do you need that? And like, and then like, you know, there's a bunch of compromise in between there. But so- there's a rule of thumb like of like how much per like like I don't know if it was one or one and a half times of recurring contracts that the whole industry would go on. All that's doing is getting to some normalized EBITDA and multiple that they're trying to do. And so I say that because like a lot of industries, you know, there's a lot of rules of thumb of multiples or, or like how they're tying it to contracts or something like that. But they're just trying to get to the cash flow valuation. Yeah, yeah. It's it's. I'm glad you mentioned rules of thumb because it's. I'm, I've, and I must have said it a hundred times on this show, but it's, um, 
I'm always cautioning people to be a little careful with rules of thumb because, you know, I use the example of some pro professional services firms. You know, we've sold a number of those in the last couple of years and I saw one traded just over one times, about one and a half times their, their adjusted EBITDA. And I've seen others trading it, you know, anything up to six times their adjusted EBITDA. Um, if we took an average rule of thumb, we'd say they were both worth three. You know, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing. And so I guess if you're a business owner listening to this and wondering about your own company and what it's worth, um, you know, I guess one of the big questions is if you're just going to use a rule of thumb, you've got to ask yourself, are you basically average? Are you the same as everybody else? Well, a hundred percent. And you know, Simon, there's like, there's a concept, a concept that I have uh, grabbed onto over the last five or 10 years that's helped me think about this. Cause like, you know, the same thing as you probably trying to like get through the noise to actually have a real conversation is like, it's 90% of the work. It's like the, the moment that you realize that someone understands this stuff, you're like, oh, we can we just kind of have a good conversation. But so here's how I like to, to address the rules of thumb. There's intrinsic financial value of a company as an asset, as it stands today. So you and I both own companies. There's a certain amount of cash flow. We're not selling it, but we still own an asset. So we need to understand what it's worth today while we own it so we can place some assumptions on it. Essentially, we in our fractional CFO business, like it's like run it like an asset and like run it like private equity. So you know what it's worth all the time, but you're not transacting. So you have to have some basic understanding of, I'm not going to get too geeky, but it's the buildup methodology in the wide average cost of capital to say, what's the risk of this cash flow given your industry size and the operations? If it's between a three and a five, we can plan for a round of four multiple, but you know it's not worth 10 times revenue for your financial advisor. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, come on, like we have to have a basic guardrail. And then, so I like to compare financial uh, strategic or intrinsic financial value, Simon, to the strategic transaction value. Going back to my example, they were both in my industry. One wanted to get into our market, so they needed everything. So it was based on the intrinsic financial value. The other one was gut it, give it to them. So the strategic value of them being able to buy our company for that multiple by gutting it, but then also cross-selling all the telecom that we weren't doing, all this stuff, they were able to provide a huge, a, a bigger valuation. For them, it was still the same rate of return. Both of them were looking at the same rate of return probably, but they were planning on doing different things with it. So I like to say, well, the strategic transaction value is when a buyer and a seller come to to the table and there's a, the emotions and the purpose of the deal that drives the intrinsic value up or down. So it's your rule of thumb. It's like, yeah, you, just for planning purposes, but then like yeah. it could change wildly depending on who's sitting on the other side of the table and why they're trying to buy your company. And that's, a, and, and that's something I want to grab onto right there is that it, it depends. It depends on who's sitting on the other end of the table. And, and at the end of the day, you know, a transaction only happens when you've got willing buyer and willing seller, right? And typically they've been able to form a lot of trust fairly quickly. Um, I, I want to ask you about that strategic value point though, because th this is something that I think comes up a little bit. Um, I, I might have a client who will say, yes, but this buyer over here, they've, they've got a strategic you know, sort of lever in this discussion. My business is worth more in their hands than it is in my hands. Um, and, and that might actually be true. Um, but as, and I'm often saying to them, they may have the ability to pay more, but it doesn't mean they've got the willingness to pay more. And so how do you, how do we bridge that gap? I mean, have you got any thoughts around how to have that discussion with, with a potential buyer? Um, from all of like, 
from the last decade, Simon, the only thing I can say when it goes back to the first part of our conversation, what if you, I mean, whether it's copiers, selling IT services, selling, you know, MA services, I don't care what you're selling. You could be selling gym memberships. What the hell does the person want? What are they trying to make progress towards? And how do you solve that pain point for them? In this specific example, we're talking about a business. Figure out what they're planning on doing with your company, why they need it, period. That is your job as the investment banker, absolutely. And like, that's exactly it. So you figure it out as it trying, you know, I mean, I could think of a thousand different reasons. If it's a public company, they got their stock price that they want to figure out, hit the quarterly earnings. You know, you might talk about, there's a lot of companies right now that are buying companies for multiple arbitrage and then pinning them up and sell them to someone else. There's actually, there was a client of ours, Simon, uh, that on the CFO services where they ended up hiring an investment banker. So they had a PE firm that knocked on their door and wanted to buy them. They knew exactly all the stuff we're talking about. So they knew exactly his dollar amount. And we and we find out that they have their entire portfolio ready to sell in 60 days. So if they paid $50 million for a client that they literally would make about, I think it was like 25 million bucks. I don't remember what it was within 60 days. Cause they weren't even planning on running the thing. Yeah. So it's like, okay, it doesn't have to do with the discounted cash flow. It has to do with why are they buying it? But what I like to say is that intrinsic value is the backstop. Like you can always turn around. Like, even if you don't have another buyer, you can turn around, do an ESOP internal transfer, sell to a PE firm or whatever at that cash flow value. But the main reason you'd hire someone like you and your the team or whoever's leading that transaction is to figure out what do these people want to do with the business and how does that impact the future strategy? Like, because like let's say you were trying to sell my business, my old one. So one of the biggest heartaches that I had, and again, not the buyer's fault, they ran managed IT services different than we did. So everything, all of my ideas that I had worked for five years on, no one gave a shit. <laughs> and I was like, that's a bummer, man. Come on. <laughs> I provided so much value. And like, they're like, no, just like, we just really want your customers and your sales reps and some of these people. And it's like, so if you, if someone would have said to me, hey, Ryan, is that important to you? I'm like, kind of like, I'm not willing to sacrifice the whole deal, but I, I want to talk about it. But like, so it's really trying to figure out. So like, it's like the black swan, you know, uh, I had a. Uh, What's his name? Uh, from the uh, oh my god, damn right, I, I won't get into it. But it's, he's a he's a negotiator. Um, um, anyway, so it's like trying to figure out that one thing that they because they're not going to give you the cards. They're not going to show that. Yes, yeah, the moment you find that out, you it doesn't matter what the cash valuation is. Like this is exactly what I want for my company. And by the way, I'm going to have every advantageous terms because I know you want it for these reasons. <laughs> yeah, indeed, indeed. Look, I think I think you you've nailed it in terms of the understanding what value your asset contributes to the buyer. Like what what hole does it fill? What can they do with it? Um, I think if I think if they see it, at the end of the day, I mean, it's it's the old question I often sort of. Put to people, if you could invest, uh, if if you could invest a dollar today and and turn it around and make two dollars tomorrow, would you do it? And everybody goes, yeah, of course. Okay, well, if you understand that kind of formula for the buyer, <laughs> <laughs> like if it's just absolutely logical and it's a better investment than probably what they're making on their core assets at the moment, well, that's going to be a good deal, right? Yeah. So, and, then, and then how are they planning on doing that, right? So then there's like there's going to be they're they're going to implement some strategies or some operational things to get the $2. And the more you understand, like you probably have deals that fall apart or you've been, I've watched them where they don't know why it's going to go from a dollar to $2. And that's where the regrets come from. Cause it was, 
things that they valued that they didn't realize were part of the chopping block or whatever in order to get the two bucks. Yeah, yeah, spot on. Mate, I'm, uh, I'm a little sensitive or aware of your timing here, but a couple of quick questions. Um, from the moment you and your dad decided that it's time to sell, how long did that process take? You know, go find buyers, negotiate, blah, 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 line by line, add backs, to right through to contracts, signs, settled, it's done. So I got to preface it this because I'll answer it and then I'll tell why. It yeah. took two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> With no investment banker. So oh, that's hilarious. That's why I, I was going to say, man, this is not leading. Like, And by the way, for all the listeners in here, don't do it like that. And so we didn't, we didn't leave a lot of value on the table. But here's why, Simon, is that we, same industry. Same accounting system, same product lines, same comp plans, same, same everything. Like literally it was like export a CSV file out of our out of our company system and then upload it to theirs. And it was an asset purchase agreement. So like it, like it, it was, so what they ended up, the main due diligence was on contract audits. So out of like thousands and thousands of contracts. So they're bank, and again, reoccurring revenue. So all, like, you know, you buy a contract or buy a copier, wrap it in with managed IT services, copier maintenance and some software. It's bank finance locked in for five years. You can't cancel it. It's like, I'd walk through some of our, I went into our big customers. I was like, we sold. They're like, really? I'm like, yeah, to who? I'm like, Moffa. like, ah. And they know they can't leave. Yeah, like, yeah. oh, that sucks. Are you going to be there? I'm like, no, I'm quitting. They're like, ah. <laughs> and they literally, <laughs> and they're like, they're like, there's nothing they can do about it. So like, there was a lot of weird circumstances that allowed that to happen. Not recommended. I'm still, you know, regretful that we didn't do a lot of the tax plan. I mean, we we left so much money on the table from the lack of intelligent advisors and cohesive plan, millions of dollars that we could have a whole nother episode on. But like, so like, I wanted to say that a little bit of background backstory because it's like, oh, I just do it yourself and it's two weeks. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, look, and I appreciate the explanation because I think, I think, you know, I'm often saying to clients when they come to us, you know, you want to run a process, et cetera. You've got to allow in your mind for up to 12 months. Like, in fact, some of them, I've, I've sold businesses that have taken 18 months. I've sold businesses that have taken two months, but, you know, you can't predict what's going to happen. So it's about, right. you, you know, what we're not trying to do is be magicians and guess what day it's going to close and exactly what amount. It's about saying, if you want an outcome, run a process because the process has been designed to get more consistent outcomes on you know on a on a on a more regular basis and so um and um, what what time what what comes what comes with that is like we i don't know the, the listeners that are listening if you're an entrepreneur i'm an entrepreneur cuz i like freedom control i want to create wealth enjoy work and make an impact and i don't want anybody telling me what to do the moment you try to do this on your own, you're foregoing all of the control that you think you have, and you're absolutely the least sophisticated person at the table. And so what happens is all the reasons that I became an entrepreneur, I didn't experience throughout that entire process. Because if you run the process like you're talking about, or if you know what you want, you know what your backstop valuation is, you know what deal structure you want, you know all these things, and you communicate it to the team like you guys, then you can say, nope, I don't want to sell. And I don't like that deal structure. I'm going to go do this. That's true control and choices, which you to just jam something through in a month, you don't get that. So like, I'd rather have the control and the options than the quick hit. 
Yeah, yeah, looks um, totally agree. And it's great advice. I, I think for those business owners, even if you're thinking of selling right now, I mean, understanding where your business is at, what it's worth, why it's worth what it is. Um, you know, there's been plenty of examples where clients have come to me wanting to sell. And after we've spent some time talking about the business, kind of discovered that they actually didn't want to sell. They just had some problems in their business they couldn't fix or didn't understand that they could fix. And once we started saying, well, look, <laughs> Sounds like you just want to get this sorted. And, and literally, I had one client go, well, do you think that's possible? I'm like, shit, dude, you don't have a 35 million bucks. You're making 5 million bucks a year. We can do a lot of things, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. of course. A lot of course, money can solve a lot of problems. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We can fix this stuff, right? And so, you know, yeah. I, I think getting your business running the way you want it to run maybe gives you that freedom, control, money, lifestyle impact you know, you may change your mind even about selling. And and by the way, you know, hey, we sell business every day. But to me, if I can help a client fall in love with their business again and lead a fulfilling, happy life, man, that's the goal, right? Like usually I'm trying to help people get to that by selling because they've decided it's time. Yeah. And then there, and what happens is, is then, you know, for the first three years of my podcast, it was called Life After Business. Now it's Intentional Growth. But like they sell and then their whole identity is wrapped up in there when really all they wanted, like- if that's where separating the ownership versus the management roles, it's usually related to the job. Like if people have clarity into how they're going to get their distributions and the things are predictable going forward, like, ah, oh, I would like that. And you're running it like an asset, not just as a job. Yeah, absolutely. Ryan, you mentioned your current business, Fractional CFO. Talk to me a little bit about, who, you know, what are you actually doing? What does Fractional CFO mean? Who do you serve? You know, what are the kind of people that you're working with today? So we, we have a program that's called the Intentional Growth Framework, where we have some training about how to view and run your company like a financial asset. And it leads into then fractional CFO services. Because Simon, what I found out is that, you know, with our old business, we never had a true CFO. And if you really break it down, what I saw is there was people that I'd looked in for help, for financial help, to like get the information that we needed. And it was like 300 to 400 bucks an hour. There's like, I'm like, well, I'm never going to use them permanently. Or on an ongoing basis, because you're going to be up a couple hundred bar, a couple hundred grand pretty fast. Other end of the spectrum was like bookkeeping services where they throw a fractional CFO title on their email signature and they're making 90 grand. So like what really I see as a gap in the marketplace is, you know, you and I both know the sheer amount of companies in the lower middle market. And so if you think about it, a traditional CFO who has been in private equity does, does M&A. That's key because you have to do that to, to see and view the company as a financial asset, understand the three statements. So what we ended up doing is hiring these CFOs for between 150 to 200 grand base pay on our salary. And we give them four to five clients and they integrate into the company. So if you run an EOS, they're, they're running the management meetings, there's people reporting them, working with the bank, the CPA firm. If they go through an exit, they would then work with a company like yours to then coordinate all those people. But they're really the linchpin in the business side to truly bring the clarity in the business. And it's 185 bucks an hour and a $5,000 minimum. So instead of 300 grand, it's call it 60. And it's really just like, hey, like how are my ideas crazy if I want to do this? What's the impact on cash flow today, the future value of the company, and my distributions? So it's constantly keeping that North Star out there and hopefully eliminating the anxiety of a lot of entrepreneurs not knowing finance and avoiding it like the plague. <laughs> yeah. No, that's cool, man. I, I see your guys are going in there and doing the 20% of the work that gives 80% of the value. And, and you know, the clients are getting a great deal for it. So, you know, it's it, I, I think that's awesome. And I think, you know, anybody listening to this and and 
I don't know if you you work with other clients overseas, but certainly if you're in the US, I mean, you, you know, I'd be reaching out to Ryan and having I'm a chat. Onboarding someone um, from uh, onboarding for someone north of Sydney, actually, as we speak. There you go. There you so go. I'm, I'm used to these weird, weird timelines, man. Yeah, yeah, no, it is a bit crazy, isn't it? So cool, awesome, Ryan. Thank you, um, mate. I, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your story. It's uh, as I said, I've I've seen you around so often over the last five years. I reckon I've been, uh, you know, every now and again bumping into you or seeing you online. I'm like, man. I Get awesome. chat to that guy one day, you know. So um, I'm glad we could find the time, and I'm, I'm appreciative of you sharing your story with us. And I appreciate you allowing me to share my story because it's uh, interesting being on the you know the other end of the podcast where like I just ask questions. So it's it's fun to be able to share like why I'm doing all this for for as long as I have been. Yeah. Mate, thanks again. It's been brilliant. And anybody who would like to uh, learn more from Ryan or reach out to him, there's going to be a bunch of stuff in the show notes there and some links you can follow. So feel free to reach out. If you do, please maybe just put a little note there letting him know that you heard uh, Ryan on the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast so he at least knows where you're coming from and 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 why you might be reaching out. But um, thank you all for listening and I hope you enjoyed the show. The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable, scalable, and saleable. Find out how you score on the eight factors that drive company value by completing the Value Builder questionnaire. Upon completion, we will send through your business scorecard so you can see how to maximize the value of your company. Just go to exitadvisory.com.au forward slash scorecard. The Buy, Grow, Sell podcast is brought to you by Exit Advisory Group a boutique M&A firm that helps business owners maximize company value and exit at the top of their game. To learn more about Exit Advisory Group, you can go to exitadvisory.com.au. And if you like what you've just heard, you can subscribe at buygrowsell.com to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Thank you for listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast with Simon Bedard. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit buygrowsell.com forward slash episodes. Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn.